0: Welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. I'm your host, Shibani Mehta, and in this episode of Interpreting India, we'll take a closer look at how China views the Indo-Pacific region. In the last decade, there has been a growing convergence of global powers on the Indo-Pacific, evident from the proliferation of multilateral initiatives in the region. It has also emerged as an arena for geopolitical competition between China and the United States. As the competition intensifies, how does China conceptualize its role in the Indo-Pacific? How will Beijing's foreign policy choices impact the region's security environment? What can India learn from the mental map through which China views the Indo-Pacific? Joining us today to discuss these questions and more is Manoj Ramani. Manoj is fellow China studies and the chairperson of the Indo-Pacific Studies program at the Takshashila Institution. His research interests range from Chinese politics, foreign policy and approaches to new technology to addressing questions of how India can work with like-minded partners to deal with challenges presented by China's rise. Manoj is the author of Smokeless War China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance, which discusses China's political, diplomatic, economic, and narrative responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Manoj. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Interpreting India. Um, This, I should say, is a long time coming. Uh, I wanted to do an episode on the Indo-Pacific, and you were the first person that I thought of, and I'm really glad it worked out. So thank you so much for making the time.
1: Thank you so much, Shivani. It is my pleasure to finally be chatting with you again, formally like this. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, We'll get right into it. Um, So the Indo-Pacific is something that we in foreign affairs and international affairs talk about a lot, write about a lot. And I just was thinking about it as a concept where it started where and what it means for the world today. Um, so, Rory Metcalf describes the Indo-Pacific as a place, an idea and a wave of sleeping, sweeping global diplomacy. If we look at the geographical boundaries of the Indo-Pacific, it stretches from East Africa to the West Coast of North America and essentially encompasses a large number of countries that are at various stages of development. Um, They all have distinct policy objectives and diverse interests. Like I was saying, the term itself has become standard language to reflect a region of growing connectivity between two oceans. But much of how this vision uh, is shaped is driven by how many nations define the China challenge and what is their approach to it. So, my first question for you is How does China see the Indo Pacific and how does it conceptualize its role in the region?
1: Right. So, good question, right? I mean, from my mind, uh, I mean, I agree with Rory's description of the Indo Pacific, but I would also say that, uh, and I think he's alluded to that when he says that it's an idea, um, uh, it, it is a strategic construct, right? All such geographies that we create. Um, In fact, all such geographies, apart from what is actually, you know, what may be actual geographical structures, what we create are uh, strategic imaginations, right? So the idea of South Asia is is a strategic imagination. Um, The idea of West Asia, the idea of MENA, those regions are strategic imaginations. And the Indo-Pacific is also a strategic reimagination from my perspective of what is where the sort of gravity of geopolitical contestation uh, and geo-economic heft today lies. Um, I mean, I think some of the data that you will see is that you know that uh, you know it's home to 65 percent of the world's population, accounts for over 60 percent of global GDP, 46 uh, percent of all merchandise trade. Um, so essentially, it's implicit that this is the this is the area which encompasses um, among the most vibrant economies and also. Uh, rising, you know, global powers. Uh, and that's why sort of this reconceptualization uh, is is critical, right? Um, so I think that's, uh, to that degree, I sort of agree. Um, in terms of how China views the Indo-Pacific, I think that from the very early stages, at least in the last decade and a half, from when this term became gradually much more popularly used, uh, I think Beijing sort of saw it with a deep sense of uh, anxiety to begin with. Um, I mean, that anxiety at certain periods of time was coupled with uh, a certain degree of dismissiveness um, because uh, it saw itself as a central actor in terms of the global economy. Um, It saw the Indo-Pacific framing as essentially trying to bring India into what was uh, the Asia-Pacific. Um, And that too, from Beijing's perspective, over the last sort of decade and a bit, has essentially been a geopolitical gambit from the American side to try and restructure the strategic geography of the region, redefine the nature of competition with China. Uh, And so therefore, there was anxiety that was coupled with dismissiveness. Why did the dismissiveness occur? Uh, Why did the dismissiveness persist? Uh, Partly because... uh, Uh, there's a sense of dismissiveness, or at least there used to be a sense of dismissiveness around India's potential capabilities to emerge as a regional challenger to China. Um, But also because uh, there was a sense that, you know, the Obama era pivot to Asia didn't really amount to much. So it didn't really yield anything. Therefore, um, this idea of the Indo-Pacific might just be, you know, one of those ideas which is floated out there and then which sort of uh, doesn't seem to actually take hold because the realities of the region and the centrality of China to regional but also global trade and global economics um, and any key major issue in world affairs today um, will necessitate that uh, this competitive view of the indo-pacific uh, doesn't uh, doesn't sort of persist right so I think from Chinese perspective there was a You know, uh, I go back to some papers that were written, which talked about uh, how studies were launched within China to try and understand what exactly does the Indo-Pacific mean in the conceptualization of the U.S. and also other countries. Uh, I think once, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump was among the first U.S. presidents to use this phrase, right? Um, And since then, there were studies in 2017, 2018 in China, and those studies were significantly funded by government support. Um, and they looked at the Indo-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific strategies of different countries. Right? They looked at, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, ASEAN, India, uh, IPC as a co- Indo-Pacific as a concept. And what they realized was that there's still significant conceptual immaturity. I think that's changed today, and perhaps we can talk about that going forward.
0: I, I really, I mean, I agree with you completely on the anxiety and sort of dismissiveness that China holds um, against the concept of the Indo-Pacific. Um, and when you said dismissiveness, I was reminded of the quote that's often cited, of the Chinese, I think, foreign minister that said that the uh, Indo-Pacific is a concept that will, uh, you know, float away like the foam between the two oceans. Um, you mentioned towards the end of your response that there is a certain change in how Beijing views the Indo-Pacific as a concept, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that.
1: Yeah, um, uh, I think this is over the last, uh, particularly towards the end of the Trump administration and now with the Biden administration, uh, now that we have, Uh, clear documents starting from 2019 from the U.S. So in 2019, you had a U.S. Department of Defense Indo-Pacific strategy document. Under Biden, you have a proper Indo-Pacific strategy document. Um, Both those have very clear articulations of what kind of regional order and thereby given global order uh, the U.S. wants to shape and what kind of capabilities it wants to bring forth to shape that uh, in terms of, you know, Military capabilities, uh, the effort is clearly to try and not just revitalize American alliances, but also to change force posture to be able to have much more uh, forward positioned American troops, much more nimble uh, force posture, which can respond to contingencies uh, in China's near seas. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is looking at uh, you know expanding and deepening its partnerships with countries like India. Um AUKUS was signed. So all of those shifts are something that Beijing noticed. Um, at the same time, I think the Indo-Pacific strategy document of the U.S. actually specifically talks about supporting India to emerge as a key regional player, right? Um, it talks about the things like diversification of supply chains and all those kinds of things. So from Beijing's perspective, increasingly, the Indo-Pacific strategy of the U.S. and the conceptualization of the regional order as Indo-Pacific started to seem like an effort at trying to craft a policy of containment. Now, the Ukraine war sort of came at an interesting time uh, from China's perspective because what since has been seen is that uh, it believes that as much as the U.S. is now sort of on two, is competing on two fronts with an active European front and also competing with China in the Indo-Pacific, from Chinese perspective, the U.S. is trying to create linkages between these two domains. Um, and the key process of doing that is to get NATO much more engaged in the Indo-Pacific. So over the last three years, we've seen NATO documents reference the Indo-Pacific. Um, and this latest summit in Vilnius was quite direct, where it talked about, you know, how what happens there is clearly in our interests, um, And there is discussion of trying to open a NATO liaison office in Japan, um you know there's discussion of there was some sort of ideas floated in dc about the possibility of offering india a nato plus uh, you know sort of status and things like that so i think that those are the kinds of things that it is looking at and it, and, and china looks at those and says that look uh, the us is trying to essentially create uh, under its indo pacific strategy a NATO-like, uh, or if not just NATO-like, a NATO-like structure to try and uh, contain China, um, and the Indo-Pacific strategy essentially implies that. Um, so therefore, this sense of anxiety, uh, the, the sense of dismissiveness is now gone. Now it is sense of anxiety, and a sense of anxiety has led to uh, quite a vitriolic pushback uh, to even the use of the phrase... Um, constantly you'll see chinese media articles and commentaries and analysts um, use when they use the indo pacific it will be used in quotation marks critically um and they'll say well this is just you know containment in the garb of something new um, so i think that's how the tre- perception has changed uh, that from being you know something that was firm on the seas uh to something which is much more sinister uh and i think that's uh, how Chinese perceptions have changed. And therefore, even the pushback has come uh, to try and discredit uh, any ideas of the Indo-Pacific.
0: I mean, it's interesting that you say that this pushback is coming from a place of anxiety because, um, I mean, it is one of the questions I had for you that China officially doesn't use the term Indo-Pacific in any foreign policy documents, any statements that it makes. Uh, Like you said, it's referred to in quotation marks or as a critique of, say, the US Indo-Pacific strategy, where uh, they're calling out the United States for wanting to maintain hegemony in the region or um, sort of, like you said, contain China and the rise of China. Um, At the same time, there has been an increase in in the use of the term when it comes to commentary and media reports um, i was also reading an article by shamsan and this was from a few years ago but he said that think tanks are organizing a lot of conferences and events that have indo pacific as the key theme so for me it appeared as you know there is a fragmented approach to the region in in one way you're not officially sort of Uh, acknowledging the concept, but you're also trying to uh, create a narrative around it that uh, is more positive and sort of reflects positively on you. So would you say that this fragmentation is part of China's approach to the region or is it just simply about owning the narrative and trying to turn it around to spin it in a way that's more positive?
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, look, studies into the concept, uh, like I said, like I said in my opening remarks, that, you know, around 2017, 2018, which is when, I think 2017 is when Trump used the phrase Indo-Pacific. The first American senior official to use the phrase was uh, uh, then Secretary of State uh, Tillerson. And then following that, Trump, I think when he was visiting Vietnam in 2017, in late 2017, uh, he had used the term Indo-Pacific and subsequently we saw it used much more uh, frequently in american discourse and around the same time chinese uh, sort of uh, academic studies uh, into the indo-pacific sort of uh, increased right so you know there's uh, there's a paper by boma uh, from some years from some years ago which has details up to 2019 and it, 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 they highlight it highlights that you know around 2016 there were about less than about five or six papers which Dealt with the subject of the Indo Pacific, so uh, academic papers, Indo Pacific strategy. Um, in 2017, there were again just three or four, but by 2018 and 2019, that shot up to between 40 to 50 papers that dealt with the idea of the Indo Pacific strategy. Um, s- these papers were, these studies were conducted by, you know, overwhelmingly by Chinese universities uh, and government think tanks and military think tanks. Um, so there was a significant uh, number of them, they were done by them. Um, and a lot of these were funded by uh, state grants, right? So, uh, so it was clear that the Chinese leadership was very interested in trying to understand uh, what exactly does this Indo-Pacific strategy mean uh, and what does it mean for different entities, right? Um, so, if, to that extent, there was an interest in trying to understand the concept and what it might mean and what are the interpretations of the concept for different states um and i would assume that today that three years ago if we were to have asked uh, somebody sitting in bangladesh what does the indo-pacific mean to you Their interpretation of that might be very different from somebody sitting in delhi or somebody sitting in seoul um so, so i think this is what the chinese are trying to understand as to how are people how are different states characterizing this uh, strategic construct do they fundamentally see it as uh a binary between the US and China? Or do they see it as essentially the linking of markets of this large domain uh, and therefore an opportunity? Um, so I think that is what it was trying to understand. What it has understood of late is that uh, the idea of the Indo-Pacific uh, is fundamentally a threat to China's centrality in the Asian, uh, Asia and Asia-Pacific. Um, because it is a geopolitical construct of trying to create balancing coalitions with regard to China, and I think the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy under the Biden administration further sort of drew a line under this, that this is what we are trying to do, um, and I think that's where Chinese posture has started to change. Um, I don't think that the, there is necessarily a discourse around the Indo-Pacific as using the construct as being something positive. I think. Um, In fact, Chinese government policy, uh, party diplomacy and mainstream media have tried to create and coin alternate narratives of order. Um, So, you know, for example, Xi Jinping's big slogan for world order is the community of common future or common destiny for mankind. Um, Under that, you've got now these different initiatives from the Belt and Road to the global security, the global development, and the global civilization initiative. None of these talk about the Indo-Pacific as a region, right? Because that is, from a Chinese lens, that is constraining Chinese activities within the boundaries of between these two oceans. And Beijing looks at itself as a global player. Um, So it doesn't necessarily want to accept this, but it does want to understand how others are viewing this strategic construct. So, that you can craft your own policy responses based on what others' approaches are, what their anxieties are, what their senses of opportunity are. Um, So, I think that's where the studies have largely been focused. Um, I think that uh, as a concept, if you were to ask uh, the mandarins in Beijing, they would tell you we would love for it to go away. (laughs) But unfortunately, that's not going to happen.
0: Uh, I'm really glad that you brought up. alternative orders and sort of China's quest to kind of offer an alternative to the US led slash Western liberal global order. Um, Again, there appears to be this very obvious contradiction in um, sort of China's professed adherence to a rule based order whereas but you're also you know a lot of your actions uh, appear to kind of what you sorry i'm just going to take that again um i'm glad that you brought up the alternative that china is trying to offer uh through its you know the global security initiative the bri and uh, other sort of initiatives it says but if you look at the Global Security Initiative, a lot of the narrative is that it will adhere to the UN-based rules. rules. Um, there's not going to be any disruption. Um, so that's the narrative, and that it's going to adhere to this existing uh, system. But in terms of action, like you said, it's about establishing Chinese centrality, a regional order in which China is the key player. How do we make sense of this contradiction?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, look, from Beijing's perspective, when it sees what's happening to the international order, and I define the international order as a set of institutions uh, where states are your primary actors, and uh, you know there is a certain set of binding norms that they have agreed to. Um, I, and I don't I don't want to sort of ascribe to it liberal or illiberal values, but that's how I would define the international order. Um, and these institutions are quite clear, the WTO, the UN, and the agencies and so on and so forth, and even regional institutions. Now, what China is saying is that it is the US which is being revisionist. Um, and there is a certain amount of merit to what they are saying. Because of course the United States has been revisionist; uh, it has been revisionist. I mean, and the Trump administration was the most egregious in this, when it pulled out of agreed international agreements, it pulled out of UN agencies. So, uh, and it has, uh, and not just the Trump administration, but as a whole, the the U.S. government has, say, for example, paralyzed the operation of the WTO because it has not agreed to the grievance redressal, redressal mechanism changes. So, I think that some of those challenges uh, that Beijing highlights. Uh, do resonate uh, and do make sense. At the same time, of course, China has also not shown too much regard for certain norms that it professes, that it, you know, uh, adheres to. For example, sovereignty and peaceful resolution of disputes, territorial integrity. Um, We know that in India. Countries know that in the South China Sea. Um, You know, China's sort of... uh, Normative, uh, in terms of its lack of criticism of uh, or any sort of pushback with regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Um, all of those tell you that you know it's viewing these norms predominantly from its uh, from the lens of its own interests. Uh, Yet, what is the kind of normative architecture that China is trying to talk, project, and profess and build? Um, It is fundamentally an architecture around the idea of sovereignty. Uh, of state sovereignty, where essentially there is there is and should be very little to no interference in how states organize, how societies organize themselves within their national boundaries. Um, and those national boundaries uh, should be inviolable. Now, of course, in the examples that I've given, Beijing itself has violated those boundaries and Beijing itself has not respected Uh, or criticize countries which have violated those boundaries. uh, And that's a function of power. But the order that it is comfortable with is one in which sovereignty is, uh, there is the primacy of sovereignty. And those national boundaries are respected in every sense of the word. So it's not just in terms of violation of territorial integrity, but also in terms of governance norms at home. Whether that is with regard to, you know, individual rights; whether that is with regard to, uh, you know, governance of cyberspace; whether that is with regard to governance of technology; um, whether that is with regard to political systems and political participation; uh, whether that is with regard to economic freedom. Um, what it does not want is interference, um, and that is the kind of world that it is arguing for. Now, when if you want to build that sort of a world um at the end of the day in theory yes sovereign states are all equal yet there are obviously clear power differentials uh, and what you will end up having is a world akin to sort of the 1800s you know great power system where you have some degree of uh, spheres of influence that are constructed and my understanding of how the chinese articulate this and this is, I think, articulated largely through the Global Civilization Initiative, is that there has to be a civilizational sphere of influence in some ways, right? Um, And that is something that they are comfortable with because they see themselves as a key civilizational player. So this will be a world order in which sovereignty is key. Civilizational influence matters, which is cultural influence matters. Uh, But at the same time, um, there is little interference in domestic affairs of countries um, and thereby, there is respect for diversity of governance modes and models. And where those diverse uh, systems and interests intersect or clash, there must be, I mean, power will fundamentally determine where those deals are settled, but there must be some degree of settlement. That's what it's ideally arguing. Now, the challenge with that is... That when you have a system which respects diversity to this degree, you end up also creating a world in which uh, egregious violations of rights, egregious norms of governance domestically become justifiable. So, my example for this is the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, in a world where everybody can claim civilizational heritage, authorizes such forms of certain forms of government governance. Um, what gives anybody the right to tell the Taliban that this is problematic? Uh, Or, you know, so the treatment of women is problematic. Education of girl child not taking place is problematic. So I think that it can create quite a volatile world also. Um, But I don't think Beijing is thinking of it from that perspective. I think what it's basically arguing is that as long as you have this diversity, it means that the Communist Party's rule has less pressure from outside forces. Um, and it has greater capacity, at least in this region, to arrive at better outcomes because it has relatively far greater power than any other entity in the region. So to me, that's that's the play that's going on now. In this process, what happens to global institutions? I think China values global institutions. It sees them as very very useful because it sees them as legitimizing a lot of what Chinese propositions are. Um, so you know, you can take uh, you can take a hundred countries with you. Uh, which are anxious about American policy. Um, And you can push back at the UN uh, and you can demonstrate strength in numbers. Um, And I think that's how it's used the UN. So I don't think that it wants to dismantle those systems. I think it wants to um, revise at some places, reform in some places to suit its own objectives. Um, And the objective is essentially this, to try and create an environment world order, which is, uh, where sovereignty is dominant, uh, and the rest is negotiated. And perhaps that negotiated process can take place through these institutions.
0: So just to follow up on that, um, domestically, what, how is this viewed, you know, Beijing's vision for a global world order? And is there something that you can tell by reading between the lines? Or is it, again, a very elite foreign policy concept that you know really doesn't concern the People of China? It's really
1: hard to say domestically, right, because uh, at the end of the day, people in China have very similar aspirations to people in most parts of the world, uh, a better life, uh, better opportunities, you know, also there is uh, this new sense of nationalism, which again is not unique to China, there is nationalism around the world, uh, resurgence of nationalism around the world. So. I, I, I think that to a certain degree, yes, it is this uh, small little uh, esoteric elite club, which is discussing foreign policy affairs, uh, it's a fairly large club, but yeah, uh, but I think that just like, I, I think that you can draw certain parallels with India, where, uh, you know, narratives sold by the leadership back home, uh, are used uh, narratives sold externally, sort of or narratives in terms of foreign policy, are used to intend used to sort of support domestic legitimacy and generate domestic legitimacy. I, I think it's very similar in some ways. You know, uh, I, I do think that there is a certain degree of, uh, you know, in, in China's case we call it wolf warriorism, uh, but even in India's case you see this assertive diplomacy. You see the use of assertive diplomacy abroad to generate domestic legitimacy. I think that there are parallels uh, that exist. Uh, Of course, it's not a neat parallel. I mean, I think Beijing to its own detriment has engaged in horrible levels of assertive diplomacy, which uh, I'm very glad to see that India has not done. Um, But I think that that is the frame in which it is used. In terms of popular discourse, it's essentially, uh, I think there is a deep understanding uh, and I I wouldn't say deep understanding. Uh, I would probably say that there is a, Deep public sense that the United States is fundamentally looking to contain China. I think that is a sense that uh, has percolated across the ecosystem. Um, I think there was a recent, uh, there was a survey by uh, Tsinghua University sometime back earlier this year. Uh, And you could see it from clearly uh, from the survey's outcomes that, you know, this, the United States was viewed quite unfavorably. Uh, Russia was viewed quite favorably um i would wager that 15 years ago or 17 years ago that would have not been the case um you know uh, so things have changed um and i think there is also a sense that um this competition with the us is long term um and it's going to sustain for, for quite some time and it's going to have an impact on people's lives um and that i think is what really impacts look the actual public right for example um, the number of Chinese students in America has tumbled uh, incredibly. Um, the num- the possibility of Chinese researchers and American researchers to work together, the cases against Chinese origin or Chinese national researchers in America, all of those kinds of things actually have a, a significant impact, impact. And the pandemic worsened this. Um, the fact that even today, there are not too many flights compared to pre-pandemic levels between the US and China. And in fact, one of the first objectives of the Blinken visit, uh, you know, a month or so ago was that, okay, let's try and get the people to people thing moving, but it's still not really happened, right? You've still not been able to move. Um, So there is deep distrust amongst the political elites now, and that is percolated to the population and that's a, a tangible impact on people. So once that happens, it's easier for these nationalistic ideas to... Deeper root, and I think that's happened in China, where it is you know um, these these sort of these these developments have built upon you know what was the patriotic education campaign launched in the mid 1990s. Those individuals who learnt in the mid 1990s are in their 20s and early 30s today, so you know they are the people who are driving. They are the young elite. So I think that that sort of led to much more friction. Um, and when that happens, you always back your side, right? So, uh, and I think you can also see it in Chinese media, right? Chinese media, like any other media, uh, apart from driven by political objectives of the party, um, are also driven by some degree to, to some degree by metrics of what's happening in, on social media, right? So, um, the more nationalistic you are, if you're getting more hits, views, counts, whatever, um, it matters. And therefore, you're seeing media do that. Right? They're, they're trying and find ways to usurp the extreme corners, um, which tells you a little bit about public sentiment. But yeah, otherwise, it's really difficult to get a sense of how people are thinking. Um, you have to use these proxy methods to try and figure it out.
0: Yeah. And I would assume that even if we were to sort of look at Chinese, the Chinese strategy for Indo-Pacific you'll have to use a lot of proxies because as we were discussing earlier, even if you look at the global security initiative, there is no mention of, forget the Indo-Pacific, any specific region, they do talk about bilateral relationships and building on, say, uh, connectivity with ASEAN and you know connectivity with Africa. Uh, but there is no, men- as opposed to, like you said, the uh, U.S.-Indo-Pacific strategy, Um, The Japanese national security strategy, which came out last year, had a full section on Indo-Pacific and the challenges that it presents. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I I totally agree with you on sort of having to use proxies and then kind of guesstimating what, you know, the facts are. Um, I wanted to go back to something that we started off with, which was the concept of the indo pacific and what sort of how china views it and um you were talking about how initially china the, the curiosity coming from china was about how do how does the rest of the world think of the indo pacific and um so a few weeks ago a colleague of mine like put out a world map in front of us and said okay but just mark out what you think is the Indo-Pacific and then mark out how you think your government views the Indo-Pacific. And it was just an interesting exercise for me personally. I hadn't actually sat down and thought about it. Um, it's also interesting to compare notes then with colleagues and be like, okay, why do you think this part of Africa is in the Indo-Pacific, but you know, not this country and so on and so forth. Um, India, of course, views itself as an important player in the region. And I would assume that understanding the Chinese view of the Indo-Pacific is essential for India. So how do you suppose India goes about trying to figure out, or maybe we there is already you know an answer, um, there is a strategy and maybe we figured it out, but how do you get a sense of How China is looking
1: at the region? Um, How do you get a sense of how China is looking at the region? I think there are a few ways that uh, one can try and understand what the thinking is. Firstly, of course, uh, is uh, official discourse, right? Uh, Is whether the concept, how how is the concept discussed within official and media discourse? So, for example, when you mentioned Wangi earlier talking about, you know, foam on the seas, he also had this lovely uh, algorithm of the Indo-Pacific, which was uh, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, you know, uh, which meant five meant the Five Eyes, four meant the Quad, three meant AUKUS, two meant U.S. bilateral partnerships, and one meant the United States itself. So that is essentially their understanding of what they think is happening in the Indo-Pacific. Now, what is their strategy, uh, and how does India understand it? I mean, to me. The first thing that I think is worth looking from an Indian point of view is the fact that this derision, this derision towards the Indo-Pacific as a concept um, is in part uh, a acknowledgement of India as a competitor and therefore that being problematic because otherwise, why would you not want... Uh, if you want India in the RCEP, what's the problem with the the geopolitical construct being changed to, or geo-economic construct being changed to Indo-Pacific also? So uh, the anxiety is with regard to, you know, India becoming a central political actor closely aligned with the United States. I mean, I think that is the first sort of thing that from an Indian point of view, one would notice. Um, and it also, so the corollary to that is that um, it, it also means that the, Beijing is extremely anxious about India's relationship with the United States. And as that rela- relationship deepens, it's likely to invite uh, you know, certain kind of responses. Those responses can be coercive. Those ris- responses can be accommodative or any other kind. What we have seen is uh, no accommodation, a lot of coercion, um, which I think I would interpret from that is that uh, Beijing believes that um, coercion is an effective tool to get India to back off uh, and accede to its wishes, but also coercion is an effective tool potentially to get India to sort of slow down in terms of its uh, closeness with the U.S. Uh, unfortunately, for, from a Chinese perspective, that is not what has happened. What has happened is that coercion has led India to far more tightly embrace the United States, right? Uh, and I don't think that that is necessarily a dilemma that, Beijing has yet been able to solve as to whether accommodation would be a better uh, approach or would coercion be a better approach. Uh, I, I don't think that we are likely to see any accommodation, at least in terms of how we've seen Chinese policies for the last three, four years or wh- what Chinese discourse is around India. Um, yet at the same time, when you know the Indian Prime Minister visited the United States uh, recently for this historic meeting, Uh, which led to this significant deals that were signed. Um, The Chinese discourse around that uh, visit was quite interesting. Uh, A lot of it was, uh, you know, very critical uh, of the United States for trying to, uh, you know, leverage India to contain China much more. Uh, And the discourse was also critical of the fact that, hey, look, these agreements sound great, but, you know, the US and China have a history of implementing grand sounding agreement, uh, of announcing grand sounding agreements, but without necessarily following through and the nuclear deal is sort of one such thing. Um, But at the same time, there was also recognition, you know, for after a very long time in some Chinese commentaries, you noted the use of the phrase major power for India. So I think that there was also so, you know, so it's it's unclear whether proximity with the United States will lead to accommodation or whether it will lead to much more coercion to me at present coercion is what's likely. So I think from an Indian perspective, if I'm looking at what China's strategy is, I think that's what I would see, that uh, they want us to not be as close to the US, not be supportive. And as we get closer, their anxieties rise, and therefore there will be reactions. Uh, The sweet spot for us would be that, you know, we get get closer and we also get accommodation, but that's not happening at the moment. Um, In terms of how China approaches the region beyond India, I think that it looks at the region very differently from this framework of the Indo-Pacific because from the American lens, the Indo-Pacific is predominantly a maritime construct. From the Indian lens, it is a maritime construct, but it is also a continental construct. So we have also got continental challenges, uh, with, namely in Pakistan, in China, in Afghanistan, um, and terrorism. Um, so therefore, our policies and our interests from the US might differ in that. Um, from a Chinese perspective, Um, looking at the Indo-Pacific and framing policy simply within this context would be playing the game on somebody else's terms. So, therefore, the initiatives that we talked about are global development, global security, global civilization. Um, The primary objective is to free frame your regional uh, architecture, uh, but the vision is global because you don't want to constrain yourself to the region. And your region is... Sort of, you know, uh, your uh, experimental domain, right? So when, it, when they talked about the Global Security Initiative, uh, you know, China talked about having a demonstration zone uh, in the lansang Mekong region for the GSI, um, which tells you that China doesn't view the Indo-Pacific as a whole. It's viewing it as sub-regions, uh, and it engages with, in sub-regional cooperation in that context. So you've got China plus the Central Asia 5, China and ASEAN, China and the Lansang-Mekong region, um, China and CELAC in Latin America, China and FOCAC with Africa. So I think that's how it's approaching the world, that it's approaching the world on its own terms. And it sees that acknowledging the idea of the Indo-Pacific and therefore structuring your strategies on that basis is playing the game on somebody else's terms, which it doesn't want to do. Um, So that's how I think they are approaching it. And I think from an Indian point of view, like I said, um, understanding their anxieties, creates opportunities and helps you understand your challenges better.
0: Um, Thank you so much. I'm really glad that we could have this conversation and just kind of break down this very, not very, but somewhat abstract concept of the Indo-Pacific. I see a lot of value in not just, you know, using that as standard language, but also trying to dig deeper into what someone means when they actually say Indo-Pacific. And most of all, trying to look at it from the Chinese point of view. So thank you so much uh, for sharing that. Um, definitely, a lot of implications for India, and uh, as we discussed, as India moves forward in its ambition as a emerging power or major power, I think it's very important to understand how the world is also thinking about India and its ambition. So, Thank you, Manoj. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me, Shibani. This was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Interpreting India on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.